neuroscience, we have this fantastic opportunity to really tackle what I think all of us would agree is the most significant frontier of all, the human brain, to try to figure out how those circuits in the brain that do all those amazing things actually function. And a new project, which is now scoped over 12 years, the Brain Initiative, is bringing together technologists from all kinds of different disciplines just like Joey Ito said, mix those disciplines all together, fill out the white space instead of the black dots. That's what we're trying to do. So enormously exciting times, but also, I got to say, tough times. Because the National Institutes of Health has lost more than 20% of its purchasing power for research over the last 10 years as a consequence of increasing stringency on federal budgets. We're leaving about half the good science on the table right now. And scientists who come to us with their ideas have a chance of only one in six that those will get supported, which is far less than it ought to be for any kind of healthy system. I'm happy to say the best and the brightest are coming anyway, and that's many of you in this room, the millennials in science uh, who are truly enormously exciting. And I'm optimistic enough to think that we will figure out, because this is such an important and noble enterprise, figuring out how disease occurs and what to do about it, that ultimately, this country will figure out its priorities and turn this corner, and we'll start to see something like a stable trajectory for biomedical research again. Because I think Churchill was right when he said, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other options. <laughs> Our political system is pretty close to exhausting all the options except the right ones, so let's hope that comes true. Finally, let me just say a word about Ebola, because many people have been asking me about that, and they should be. This is an enormously troubling circumstance, an outbreak of unprecedented scale for this particular virus, which first appeared in 1976, but now in the course of just the last couple of months, and now in an exponential phase, has taken more than 2,000 lives, primarily in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. This is a problem not just for those countries. Their public health systems are obviously quite rudimentary. Their resources are limited. This is a problem for anybody who cares about humanity. At NIH, we've been working very hard to accelerate the pace of developing a vaccine that will be successful in preventing people from getting sick if they get exposed. And just two weeks ago, we initiated the first phase one trial of a vaccine, which frankly has been in development for 13 years. And frankly, if we had not had those budget cuts over the last 10 years, would already have been ready uh, for this particular outbreak. We're about a year late. But boy, we are pushing every button to make that happen, as well as developing therapeutics to treat people who do get sick, like that ZMAP thing that you might have heard about uh, for the seven individuals who received this, and uh, where it does appear that there might have been some benefit. And certainly, this is a very effective therapeutic in the animal models that have been tested. But we need to scale up the production, and that turns out to be much more difficult than you might think. And then we need to do those trials to prove whether things really work or not. We have fooled ourselves way too many times about good intentions of preventions or therapeutics. Unless you do that rigorous randomized control trial, you never really know. And we can't cut that corner now, or we'll regret it later. So much push there to do this. We can do this, but it's got to be all hands on deck. NIH has a piece of this. CDC has an enormous piece of this. USAID has a big part of this. And increasingly, it looks to all of us that what we really need is the Department of Defense with their capability of setting up military hospital style beds for patients who desperately need them may be the best hope we have of turning this around. And there's no time to waste. When you look at exponential curves, 
of a disease, you know you've got to move quickly because it's not going to get better on its own. Each infected person in Liberia is now infecting two or three others. We have to turn that around. That needs leadership. That needs resources. Uh, clearly, uh, that needs industry. I was talking to Elizabeth Holmes about uh, ideas that her company has about ways to improve the rapid diagnostics without requiring phlebotomy, a very important area that we should be talking about. So much opportunity, but also frustration. Well, that's kind of the nature, I guess, of medical research. Opportunity, but some frustration. I'm both enormously excited about all the diseases for which we have developed interventions over the past few years, but I'm also troubled about the roughly 7,000 diseases that currently have no approved therapy. We have to work hard on those. And sometimes I get a little bit worked up about sort of the enormity of all this, and it helps me, and maybe it would help you too, uh, to think about what this is really all about, and this in many ways links back to that wonderful reading that Carol Burnett gave us from her daughter. A few years ago, I volunteered as a volunteer physician in Nigeria, feeling that it was a good thing to learn about what medicine was like in other parts of the world. And I went there with this full expectation that I, this Western-trained physician, was going to be able to arrive in the space of two weeks, uh, save thousands of lives, and turn the whole country around. <laughs> there was a pride thing there, as you might uh, be able to discern. And yet, when I got there, I discovered the public health system was so broken that the people who came to see me in the clinic or who I tried to take care of in the hospital, even if I got them somewhat better, they were going to go back to a situation where probably something else would happen that would be bad for them. And I was pretty frustrated. I wasn't sure, why am I there? I was a believer. God, why did you call me to do this? And I was ready to go home with uh, a sense that this was uh, pretty much a failed enterprise. And a young farmer came to see me in the clinic who was really an extremist. Uh, having very difficult time breathing uh, with enormous swelling of all parts of his body and it became clear that he had tuberculosis and he had fluid that was building up in the sac around his heart, the pericardium. And if something wasn't done in a very urgent way, he was not going to probably live more than a day or two. I had never done the procedure that's required to remove that fluid, which means basically sticking a very sharp needle into a very sensitive part of somebody's body and in a place where there was no particular technology to make sure you were doing it right, but it seemed the only thing to do. And uh, by a great good luck, it actually turned out well in terms of hitting the right spot, draining off the fluid. And it was rather remarkable seeing then the improvement in his uh, situation over the course of the next day or so. And so I felt kind of exhilarated. Hey, I think I did something here that may have saved this person's life. But then I thought, you know, he's got TB. He probably isn't going to be able to take the drugs that he needs for the next six months. He'll go back. He'll get cholera or something else. And the same old gloom settled over me. And I went to see him uh, in the next day on rounds. And he was sitting on his bed. And he said, young farmer, different from me as you can imagine, but perceptive. Because he looked at me and he said, you know, I get the feeling that you're new here. Because <laughs> there were a lot of docs who'd been there for years. And me, that was my second week. Well, I was a little irritated that he could tell this. But I said, well, yeah, actually, I'm a volunteer. And I've just been here a short time. And he said, I also get the feeling that you're wondering why you're here. <laughs> and now I was really stunned. How did he, how did he know that? 
And then he said something that I want to give as a gift to you, because it was a gift to me. He said, I have an answer for you. I can tell you why you're here. You came here for one reason. You came here for me. Think about that. We all have our grand schemes, our visions, our hopes, our dreams of how we're going to contribute something that'll make the world a better place, reduce suffering, uh, give opportunities to those who need them. And we should. And the people in this room, probably more than any collection I can think of that's happening anywhere in the world right now, are those people with those dreams. But when it all comes down to it, what we're really trying to do is what that farmer said to me. You're there for that person, that person who's going to benefit from what you're doing, even if you don't meet them. That's what it's all about. That's what this achievement thing that we're all gathered here to talk about is really aiming for. Thank you very much.